If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Ecclesiastes 11. We're going to be looking 11.8, and we're going to be pushing through 12, uh, almost to the end. One more after this week, uh, next week. So uh, as you open there, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you before, but, but I have experienced the spiritual gift of dunking. I have experienced the spiritual gift of dunking. And yes, I mean a basketball. It's a spiritual gift. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Let me share with you how it happened. Uh, my wife and I, back in 2005, led uh, a group of 12 college students to Asia uh, where we basically, for six weeks, um, were at work on a college campus, and, and we were just sharing the gospel, essentially, uh, while taking some classes. And so uh, while we were doing that, we found that some of the best ways to strike up conversations with folks was on the basketball court. And so no kidding, I would spend three hours a day playing basketball, and what would often happen is we'd play and then when the game was over, we would say, hey, you want to grab lunch? And so uh, we would often grab lunch, and then at that lunch, we would share the gospel. So one day, I was sharing with this uh, young man by the name of Teddy. Uh, Teddy, I started sharing the gospel with Teddy. I was like, Teddy, let me tell you about Jesus. And he's like, that's great. Can you dunk? I'm six foot four, so everybody assumes I can dunk. Now, what he didn't know and what you don't know is I am stricken with this uh, illness that means I can't jump very high. I'm six foot five, four. I can kind of finger... well. It, in my best days, right, I could kind of fingertip a dunk in, right? It's sad. I know. You can judge me. It's fine. Uh, but, but I'm like, all right, Teddy, yeah, um, okay, I'll meet you somewhere, and uh, we'll see if I can dunk. So, um, so I went home, and we set a time, and I prayed. I said, Lord, I think if I dunk, he might come to know you. So, <laughs> so could you work that out? Like, I've never been able to do it consistently. Can you just hook me up, right? And so we show up, and it's me and Teddy, and he's like, hands me a basketball. He's looking expectantly, and I'm like, all right, here we go. And so I take it, and I go to dunk, and like, it wasn't just a fingertip dunk. It was like forearm above the rim dunk. And so I get down, and I'm like, Teddy, you just wait right there. I'll come talk to you in a minute. I'm going to do this as many times as I can, because I'll probably never experience it again. So I'm like two-handed. I did a reverse. It was one of the best days of my life, I'll be honest. Um <laughs> So shallow. Um, so, so here's the best part of that whole day, right? Let me redeem this somehow. So, so I talked to Teddy afterwards. And you know what? Teddy came to faith. Uh, he did. And, and I know it's not because I dunked a basketball. But, um, you know, and, and he ended up being discipled for the next year until we eventually lost touch. We regained touch about four years later. And he still uh, was uh, claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So it was really beautiful. And so that, to me, is proof that there is a spiritual gift of dunking. Okay, before you write me up on charges. There's not a spiritual gift of dunking. Although I do still believe there was some form of divine intervention. But you know what happened is when I went home, I was actually still able to dunk, at least for a week or two. Here's what I think happened. Apart, you know, divine intervention, yes. But, but I was like 24, 25. Like prime, physical prime. I think studies show that after that age, you start declining physically, right? The mental stuff, that, that keeps going for a couple more years. But I was playing three hours of basketball a day. Like I was as fit as I've ever been. And so you know what I think played a big part in that day? Youth. I was young. I had all the energy in the world. My body was ready to go, right? I could play basketball for three hours a day. You know, isn't being young kind of cool? Right? I mean, those of you who are young, maybe you don't know it because you're in it, but those of us who look back on it, youth was wonderful, wasn't it? Our bodies were strong. 
We could go to the gym and not need to, an ambulance the next day, uh, which is kind of how it's starting to feel for me. Um, you know, the problem is, is, you know, now I can barely touch the net. Um, you know, I go to the gym and my poor wife and kids are like, dad's going to complain for the next four days. Uh, I was talking to a friend uh, who's in a life phase a little bit beyond mine. And I just said, hey, I don't understand what you walk through. Can you tell me what some of your greatest struggles are? Uh, and he was talking to me. He goes, yeah, one of the words that I think of most and some of my friends think of most is regret. Is regret. Which is so different from when you're young. You remember how carefree it was? How easy laughter came? You remember how quick you could change direction and it not have a huge impact in your life? Try doing that at 60, right? We can dare to dream in those seasons. Friends, there is something very beautiful about youth. But here's the problem, at least in our culture. If you just look at where our dollars go, billions and billions of dollars are spent to try to keep it. To try to say, I'm going to hold on to it no matter what. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons estimate 1.9 to 2.6 million cosmetic procedures when things start getting a little more wrinkly happen on U.S. shores, right? And then if you add in the overseas or foreign country version of that, it's estimated up to about 10 million. We spend a lot of our money on um, things that are good. I'm not saying taking care of yourself and being healthy is bad, but we've become a little neurotic as a culture, right? Can I just, can I tell you all a secret? This is real talk today. Okay, ready? A donut at Whole Foods is just as bad for you as a donut at Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) Real talk. Might not have GMOs, but it has BMOs. Belly, uh, uh, sorry, uh, GMOs, what? Belly modifying organisms? Like it has those, right? Even though it doesn't have the GMOs. You know what else I think we do when we're young? We look at people who are older than us and we're kind of like, oh, you don't get it. Okay, boomer, right? We say things like that. And you know what I think that in some part is? Is us kind of hating those who are older than us because we're afraid of aging. We're afraid of losing youth. At its core in our culture, I think we actually idolize youth. We make it a god. We make it something that we worship, that we give ourselves to, that we neurotically pursue. And again, I'm not saying it's bad to be healthy. But when we disdain age, when we fear it, I think it's entered into a different category that God never intended. When we idolize our youth, you know what it will eventually do? It will leave us vexed. That's a word we're going to come across, which means bitter or empty. Because you know why? You know why we would eventually be vexed? is because we're constantly faced with the entropy of a post-Genesis 3 world. The decline of age. It's going to happen. And so I think what the preacher wants us to look at today is this idea of remembering our Creator when we're young. Remember our Creator when we're young. So let me read the first part of the passage, 11, 8 to 10. And then we're going to read 12 in just a minute. But here's what 8 says. Follow along with me. It says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that come is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that all things 
God, and that in all things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let me pray for us as we get going here this morning. Well, Lord, if your Spirit does not apply your word to our hearts, Lord, we will not change. But Father, I pray that you would cause us to come to you with a sense of desperation, knowing that we actually need to hear from you this morning. That we need you to challenge our thinking in our hearts. That we need you to sanctify us, to remove the pollution of sin. Lord, some of us may need to get to know you for the first time and like Teddy, place our faith in you. And so Spirit, can I just ask you to be at work among us, accomplishing your work. Lord, would you be with my words? Uh, Lord, protect me from any offenses that would come out of my mouth apart from your gospel. We love you. In your name, amen. All right, so two bullet points today, and it's really the two main verbs in, in this section and in 12, 1 to 8. And the first one is rejoice. The second one is remember. As we're talking about this idea of youth, uh, God's Word calls us to rejoice and remember. And so first, let's talk about this picture of rejoice. We saw the word a couple of times, once in 8 and once at the beginning of 9. And so we can simply put start off with saying, hey, as it pertains to our youth, one of the ways that we remember our Creator and one of the ways we engage with it is to actually enjoy it. God is not a curmudgeon. He's not sitting up there being like, well, you just wait, right? No, He's saying rejoice. Enjoy your youth. But there's a couple of qualifiers that we see here with the joy that we experience in our youth. And the two things we see is there's a sober joy and a right joy. A sober joy and a right joy. Here's the sober joy. In verses 8 and 10, we see this term vanity. In verse 8, it says the days of darkness will be many, right? So, so some of that youthful joy will not last forever. It's vanity. That's the mist or the vapor. In the end, it says, hey, don't vex yourself. And he's essentially saying by trying to retain that youth. But remember that even that youth is a vapor. And so here's the sober joy. This is, this is how we can actually rejoice in our youth and, and take heart in it. As if we approach it saying, hey, it's temporary. It's not permanent. And the reason that's important is because we need to name that anything that is temporary is not worthy of our worship. It is not worthy of our sacrifice. It is not worthy of our everything. In fact, to idolize youth is actually going to be disastrous. We said it a couple of weeks ago, to truly enjoy or rejoice in something, uh, we can't make it an idol. Anything that we make an idol will rule us. It will become a tyrant if it is not the one true God of the universe. And so the first thing he says is, as you enjoy it, enjoy it responsibly, right? Don't make it a God. Don't make it something that it's not. The second thing we see is in verse 9. There is a right joy. A right joy. So, in our culture, this first phrase sings in our hearts. In your youth, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. It's basically saying, experience the freedom to enjoy being young. What your heart desires and what your eyes see. Go enjoy it. And we're like, yes, that's what our culture screams, right? But there's a qualifier that comes right after it. It's not this... Uh, unbound joy. 
In fact, it says, know that in all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, he's not saying, okay, go be free, and then God's going to zap you in the end. That's not at all what it's saying. It's saying experience freedom, but there's actually a perfect sort of freedom that that has bounds. It's not a free-for-all. That we enjoy our freedoms in the sight of God, who is a righteous judge. And so part of our rejoicing is knowing that, that, that true freedom always has a worthy goal. And in this case, it's righteousness. It's truly following after Jesus and looking more and more like him. To do otherwise will leave us to triviality and vice, which will leave us empty and hollow. So we just got rid of our 2006 Sienna here this year. We love to drive cars in the ground. We've talked about that before. And as we're, you know, there's pockets and stuff in cars that we forget about. Did you know that? You ever experienced that? Uh, so we're cleaning out the pockets in the back of the driver's seat, and I pull out a relic. I mean, this thing belonged in a museum. You know what it was? It was a road map. It was a paper road map. Did you know we used to use those? Like, we used to actually have to think when we drove, right? Instead of being like, Waze told me to turn left, I'm turning left, right? So that's, that's kind of how it is today. But, but I remember the road map. Some of you remember the roadmap too. You remember the big Rand McNally books that were like eight inches thick? And like in Virginia Beach, there's a lot of roads. So I'm just like, how do I get there? I open it and I find it and, and we actually get there. And I remember as a kid sitting there on the floor, just being so like sobered by how many roads there were, right? And also recognizing that there's only a couple roads that we can take that get us to where we actually want to head. You know what I've never had? I've never had map rebellion. Have you ever had map rebellion? Where you're like, ah, this map, I'm not going the direction. Yeah, some of you are like, I have had map rebellion. But, but I've never experienced that, right? In part because intuitively, we know that while a map may show us that we don't have all the freedom we want to get from here to Washington, D.C., we actually have to follow roads and whatnot. It gives us freedom in that it limits us from the frustration of, Driving to West Virginia when we're trying to go to Washington, D.C. Or trusting our uninstructed feelings. You ever done that when you drive? I think I take a right here and you end up in Egypt, right? It's like, how did we get here? It keeps us from wasting time. And so in a way, there's a limited freedom in that map, but, but it also gives us freedom from the bondage of, of all of the other wrong turns and directions that will lead us in the wrong direction. Friends, here's why I'm sharing this with you is that our Creator actually calls us to His map. And it is gracious. And it is good. We've been studying it in the book of Ecclesiastes. His wisdom that shows us this is the way of frustration. This is the way of joy in life. Ultimately, do you know what this map points us to? First of all, I would say the map is His Word. But His Word is constantly pushing us unendingly towards the person and work of Jesus Christ. What it looks like to follow Him. And so let me full stop there and just talk to my younger friends here for just a moment. After having been a campus ministry uh, minister for a decade, a minister for 20 years, for having lived 42 and and many of them having my own God-rebellious moments, there is a great cost when we navigate off the map. There is a great cost when we don't even know what the map looks like in the first place. 
And I'm afraid especially the younger we get, the more distant we are from even understanding God's goodness and what He's presented us in His Word. And so can I just beg you this morning to own the map that He's given to you graciously and lovingly. And for those of us who don't fall into the young category, one of the things I've experienced when, when I've had a conversation be like, hey, uh, older folks, I'm going to call us older, right? I'm going to do that now. I'm middle-aged so I can walk the line. A lot of people would say, ah, the younger generation just doesn't want to be discipled. First of all, that's just not true. Second of all, yes, there is always resistance, and there has been forever. Just read the Proverbs. It's this parent saying, please follow wisdom. An older, wiser brother saying, please follow the wisdom of the Lord. Older friends, don't give up on the younger folks. If they say, hey, boomer, just get over it. Pursue them just like Christ would pursue us. We need each other desperately to walk with each other, to point each other to God's Word and to Christ. All right, here's the second point, this idea of remembering. It's remembering. There's the next verb. I'm going to read to you 12, 1 to 8. So pick back up there. And as you do, let me just give you a picture of what we're getting ready to read. This is a poem. Some people would say it's a poem depicting a funeral procession, but I would say the bulk of commentators would say this is just a poem of what it feels like to get older. And so just tune your ears to that and and see if you can kind of pick up on some of those themes. Ready? Start in verse 1. Remember, there's our word, also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and strong men are bent. And the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut. And the sound of the grinding is low and one rises with the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. All right. So there's our poem. Now here's the first thing that that the preacher wants us to draw our attention to. If 11.10 ended with this idea of of youth is vanity, it's a vapor and a mist, he's pushing us to look towards that which won't last forever to the one who is eternal. And he says, in your youth, remember your Creator. So here's the thing that we need to reorient ourselves to. What is the preacher talking about when he says the Creator in the context of this book? What has he said so far about the Creator that we need to remember time and time again? Here's the first thing. All the way back in chapter 3, remember that? It says, God, our Creator, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So the first thing he's saying about the Creator is our Creator, unlike us, sees the pattern as a whole. We will only see one swatch of the quilt our whole lives. He is the only one who sees it all. And he says, I make it beautiful in its time. Here's the second thing he says. Ecclesiastes 7. 
See, this alone I found, that God made man, there's the creative work, upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Here's what he's saying. Is that God, our Creator's perfect work, was spoiled by our schemes. That's a picture of sin. It's creation. God made it, and He made it good. And we broke it by introducing sin. Which is quite different of how we typically interpret the world, including aging. We would say, God, why did you make this mistake in my life to make me age? And God is saying it is the schemes and the broken, dark heart of humankind that actually undid what I created. Here's the last one. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Here's his point here. The Creator's work is continuous and unsearchable. God's work of redemption did not stop when the Taliban took over Afghanistan or when a pandemic broke out in our world. His work continues, and it is also unsearchable, which means we will never truly know exactly why all of these things are happening. And so when he points us to the Creator, these are the realities that he wants to call to our attention. He sees the pattern for the whole. His work was good but our schemes interfered. His creativity and work is continuous and unsearchable. Essentially, what the preacher wants us to know is that we evaluate the world's happening around us through the lens of our Creator, not evaluating our Creator through the lens of what's happening around us. Here's a second word we need to look at. It's the term before. Before. So he says, remember your Creator, and then in verses 1, 2, and 6... He makes it time-bound. He goes, remember before these things happen in your lives. Here's the first one. He says, remember before the days are evil. In verse 1, did you see that? This this week I read an article about how Afghan uh, pastors are reflecting on the work of God's sovereignty. Some of you I know, your email inboxes were blowing up by some of these stories. And and what you found is that many Christian pastors in Afghanistan, because they wanted uh, their posterity, their children to know that they were vocal about their faith in Jesus Christ, decided to register with the state that they were pastors of Christian churches. They had no idea that in a few weeks the Taliban would be taking over. One pastor received a letter that said, we know who you are, what you do, and where to find you from the Taliban. Thankfully, when they showed up in his door on that Saturday morning, he wasn't there. A group of pastors gathered to talk about God's sovereignty and what was happening at a retreat. And on the last day of this retreat, they were getting ready to sing this song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And right about that time, somebody came into the room and they said, Afghanistan's president has just resigned. The Taliban is now in control. And they continued to sing this song, of which the last verse says this, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Friends, this is indicative of people who have spent the days before they went evil meditating and being convinced of the goodness of their Creator. And I would just say this, anecdotally, having walked with many friends into the valley of the shadow of literal death, is that I've seen time and time again the one who has spent 
a lifetime remembering their Creator, will rarely forget Him in the day of trial. Here's the second before. Saying, remember your Creator before you age. Let me just walk you through the metaphors in 2 to 5 to see if you caught it. Ready? It says, before, basically, there are clouds that return after the rain. This is the kind of chill of those fall rainstorms that are reminding you that winter is well on the way. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. So think of a great house. Think Downton Abbey for you Downton Abbey watchers, right? It's the decline of the house. The keepers are trembling, right? The housekeepers, they're, they're aging and they're less steady. The strong men are bent. The ones who worked in the fields and the gardens, right? Their backs are bent with age. The grinders cease because they are few. You know what the grinders are? They're teeth. It's saying the grinder just slowing down because there's not many teeth left. It says those who look through the windows are dimmed. The windows are the pictures of eyes, dimmed by things like cataracts. The doors of the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low. The doors of the street represent the ears that hear a little bit less as you get older. And one rises at the sound of a bird. Right, the Bible gets real. Do you know what it's saying? It's saying the older you get, the less you sleep. Any of y'all get up a few times in the middle of the night? Yes, right? Saying one rises up with the sounds of the birds. We just can't sleep anymore as we get older. It says all the daughters of song are brought low. That's the aging vocal cords that wear out over time. They're afraid of what's high and the terrors on the way. This is someone who is unsteady, afraid of falling, afraid of breaking. The almond tree blossoms, that's referring to white hair. That's what color the almond tree blossoms are. The grasshopper, the great sign of youth in this scene, is dragging themselves along. As American folk singer Peter Seeger would say, how do I know my youth is all spent? My get up and go has got up and went. Right? That's essentially what it's saying. The preacher is saying, remember your Creator before age begins to creep in. He's finally saying, remember your Creator before death. Before death. Verse 6, it's this picture of, of golden pots, a silver strand. It's showing the beauty of God's creation, of creating humankind in His image. But He's also depicting the fragile nature of us, that we are easily broken, snapped. Ultimately, from dust we came into dust we will return, and the breath that we received from God's Spirit, will one day return to Him. And so, friends, the bottom line here is he's saying, hey, no matter when you're reading and listening to this passage, it's actually never too late to remember your Creator. Death has not seized those of us sitting here in this room right now. So the opportunity is there to remember. So let's talk finally about that term, remember. What does that actually mean? Does that just mean like kind of like remembering your third grade vocab words? I kind of remember those from time to time. You remember that? You're like, I remember this word from third grade. I do that. It's weird. But, but it's not just that. It's not this like intellectual exercise. But this term in Hebrew means remember in such a way that it causes a response. A response of the will and a response in the way we live. I, I think of that when I think of, hey, I remember my bride. I think of the things that I love about Sarah. And as I meditate on that, you know what it does? It warms my heart to move towards her, to do the things that, that, that please her, that show her my love. 
And so that's the type of picture that that remembering is painting for us here. And since we can't take Ecclesiastes as a standalone book because it's in the greater swath of Scripture, do you know we can actually know and, and get a very clear picture of who this Creator actually is? If we fast forward to the New Testament, we get a picture of this Creator in Colossians 1. And it's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Friends, as we remember this Creator, we can open the pages of Scripture and see how we engage with those of us who are so quick to forget. How we engage with the broken. How we engage with the rebellious. How we looked at those who are harassed with mercy and moved towards the ones who society would deem unlovable. We have picture after picture of this Creator. Why is it important for us to remember this Creator? Well, let me give you three things. First, to prevent forgetting. To prevent forgetting. It's really easy to forget. It's really easy to forget when the pressures of life come. When illness comes. When estranged relationships come. It's easy to forget. Some of us right now are either walking personally or with a loved one through a time of literal forgetting, where our brains will no longer capture the things and remember the things that they used to remember. I walked through this with a grandparent. I remember Scott Sauls as he was documenting uh, his mother's journey uh, through one of these illnesses. He says she began to forget pretty much everything, but the one thing that she continued to do is she could remember hymns she used to sing about Jesus. She remembered on Sunday she wanted to get up and go to church. And what he articulated is that that what she was doing was remembering some of the most important truths in the universe. John Newton, the one who wrote the song Amazing Grace, the former captain of a slave ship, said this as he was aging. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Friends, spend your lives remembering that. Here's the second thing I would say, especially to those of us who are younger. We remember our Creator when we're young to pave the way for a life of loving and serving Him. In campus ministry, every year we would give this talk. It would say, hey, in college you typically choose these two things, master and mission. You typically land the plane on who or what you will submit your entire lives to, if it's people-pleasing, if it's money, or if it's a success, or a cause, or if it's God Himself. And then mission, what you will give everything in your life for. Those are typically the two things that, that we decide pretty early on. And so for those of you who are younger, can I push you in the midst of setting your trajectory in life to remember your Creator so that you can spend a lifetime following Him? Here's the third thing I would say. It's part of the reason we remember our creators because we are woefully forgetful. Friends, it doesn't take much for me to quickly fear and forget my good God and Savior. 
And when we remember, do you know what we're doing? We're really reminding ourselves that He remembers us. Do you know when He remembers you? He remembered you before the foundations of the earth. He, for the joy set before Him, remembered you on His way to the cross. He remembered you when He rose from the dead and when He ascended into glory. He continues to watch over you and He promises to remember you when you come into His kingdom and never forget you for eternity. That is His promise through Jesus Christ. Phil Riken, as he walked through a struggle with a grandfather, as he battled Alzheimer's, he got to the point where he couldn't remember who he was. And he said that to his wife, and his wife replied, That's okay, Dad. I know who you are, and I can take care of everything you need. Friends, that is what our God says to us. That is what we need to constantly remember ourselves. Is that yes, we are always to remember our Creator. But as we do, it reminds us that our Creator has a better memory than we do. And He does not forget. As we close, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to read a passage to you from the New Testament that both captures this idea of aging, but also that God doesn't forget that he is faithful in the midst of it. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just absorb it. Just listen to it. Sit in it. And hear how your God, through Jesus Christ, does not forget. So go ahead and close your eyes. I'm going to read it to you. And I'm going to close in prayer. 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of youth. But Lord, we pray that we will not worship it, The Lord, receive it as a gift and rejoice in it. And Father, as we age, as we face dark days, as we face our failing tents, Lord, even as we face death, I pray that we will remember you. And Lord, right now, before the days are dark, if we are still young, Lord, I beg you that you would build into us the want to and the rhythms to remember that You are faithful and that You are good and that You do not abandon us. And Lord, for the heart that has not turned to You in faith, for the heart that has rebelled against You, Lord, death has not yet captured that person. And right now, I pray that they would lay hold of that opportunity to believe in You, King Jesus, to trust You, to repent of their rebellion against you. And to see your smile, even that picture of you on the way to the cross, calling us the joy that has been set before you. Remind us of that, we pray in your name. Amen.